Again, today's scripture sermon reading is from Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Leo. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you. So as you can see, we're continuing in our series in the book of Malachi this week. This is the third out of four weeks. And for those of you who might be joining us for the first time, my name's Andrew. I'm filling in for our lead pastor while he's on paternity leave. And our church is in a year-long series in the Gospel of Matthew, but we took a pause on that because not only were we due for a break, but it worked out nicely with Pastor Steve being out. So here we are in Malachi, and I'm sure the question on everyone's mind coming into today was, so what did they do now? Uh, I'll offer you all a visual of the state of things in Malachi. This is sad because it's what popped into my mind when I thought of the Israelites just like hitting major, major sin after major sin. So I'm from Amish country in Pennsylvania. Shout out to Jordan, also from Amish country. And where I grew up, stepping in or driving in horse poop is a constant danger. The worst is when you happen to get stuck uh, near where the Amish gathered for Sunday worship, and if you get stuck behind that buggy train leaving the house, it's just like bum, 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 just like horse poop after horse poop. It takes forever for that to get out of your tires. So that's basically where the Israelites are at, right? Just hitting major sin poop heap after major sin poop heap. So now that you all have that visual and perhaps smell uh, in your mind, to recap, the book of Malachi is structured into a series of charges that God brings against Israel. So these were violations of the covenant he made with them, and they were serious. So the last two weeks alone saw us examine the Israelites' polluted worship offerings, the priests' corrupt and unfaithful teaching, and widespread adultery and marrying of pagan spouses. Today, we add the uh, ever-so-light charge of robbing God through holding back of their tithes and offerings. So we'll walk through the passage in these three ways. First, how the Israelites robbed God. Second, God's immediate response. And third, God's final response. So again, first, how the Israelites robbed God, God's immediate response, and then finally, God's final response. So ultimately, how the Israelites robbed God is pretty straightforward. It's in verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? So there we have it. Somewhat similar to the Israelites offering polluted worship back in chapter 1, we find out they are uh, withholding or not meeting the amount that they are supposed to be tithing under Old Testament law. Now, we hear the word tithe and probably just assume the amount being discussed is a tenth of their income, 
but it was quite a bit more. So Old Testament Israelites gave anywhere between 23 and 30% of their income. So they had two annual tithes of 10%, a third tithe every third and fifth years. The offering for the priests was an additional 2 to 10%, and that doesn't even include sin and thank offerings, which as we learned in their first sermon can be very costly. And even that doesn't include factors like taking a Sabbath every seven years where they wouldn't make any money or leaving part of their field for the poor to come and glean from. I saw some scholars throw around the figure of them giving 40% before all is said and done. Clearly, though, they are not meeting that figure, and God says they're robbing him. And the verb rob there has a quite intense connotation. It can also mean defrauding or pilfering. But when God poses the question, will man rob God, it's a bit rhetorical in a sense, no, because you, in a sense you can't rob God. He's everything he needs, right, and can produce whatever he wants at any time he pleases. And there's also this kind of unspoken answer to that question, will man rob God? I mean, no one would ever think of consciously robbing God. That would be insane or, or stupid. But God is clear here in this passage that the Israelites are doing so. And the fact that God is saying he's being robbed does indicate that the Israelites are stealing from him in some way. So we need to unpack that. At the heart behind the law of tithing is stewardship of what God has given us and faith that God will provide. So through his covenant with his people, God gives the Israelites a promised land, a relationship with him, and blessing that could be found nowhere else. And in return... He asks that they treat these gifts as sacred, to treat them in the way that he demands. And one of those requirements is, is to give some of the financial blessing back to God. So in the Old Testament economy, this money and these resources covered the sanctuary offerings on behalf of the nation. It covered the taxes for the nation and charitable gifts to the poor. So by holding back from what they were supposed to be giving, the Israelites were disrupting God's economy by siphoning off money that was supposed to be going towards the temple, towards the poor, towards corporate offerings. Now, as we kind of talked about, could God have come up with another, another way to provide? Sure, as we said, you can't really rob God. But that's not the point. The point here is not to appease God because he's vain and covets shiny coins like a large bird. Rather, God dictated this policy because they would benefit through increased faith in him and a society where the vulnerable are protected. They're really robbing themselves, not God. Because they were giving up the opportunity to, by faith, go deeper in their relationship with God. This is where we can apply it to ourselves. So where might we give up the opportunity to go deeper with God via steps of faith? Where are we robbing God in that sense? Perhaps the most obvious here is what this passage focuses on, money. So at Doxology, we do teach that the Bible prescribes tithing a sacrificial percentage of our income to the church. And few things are more countercultural or straight-up bananas in our society today, especially in the DMV. But just like the Israelites in this passage, God's primarily after our heart. He wants us to trust in his providence, and to trust in him to provide when the thing we want to do most is clutch our money and gaze at the numbers at our bank account app. He breaks the stranglehold money has on us by showing that he is enough. 
A uh, Harvard professor once asked millionaires how much money they would need to get to a 10 out of 10 on a happiness scale, and every single one of them said exactly double their current net worth. So the person who was worth 1 million said, I need 2 million for me to get to a 10 out of 10. The person worth 2 said 4. The person worth 50 said 100 million, and so on. And we do the same thing. When we, we rob God when we tell ourselves, I just need a little bit more, and then I'll feel secure. I just need X amount, and then I'll be comfortable. We're robbing ourselves of full security and trust in Jesus when we trust in our money. And so I'll, I'll leave you here with this additional thought when it comes to money. Say, say we do tithe and give sacrificially to the church. Praise God. Assuming that money comes from our primary job and employment, which in most cases it does, do we still rob God if we are not diligent and faithful employees and coworkers of said job? So if our money and therefore tithe comes from a place of time wasting or gossiping about coworkers, perhaps then our, our tithe is not really from our first fruits of our labor and we're still not stewarding what he's given us well. But if, God, if robbing God is denying ourselves an opportunity to step out in faith to deepen our relationship with him, then we can rob God and ourselves in a lot of other ways outside of money. So I love the way K.J. Ramsey puts it. It should be up on the screen here. She says, I fear we have been discipled to rise above the places where God most wants to meet us. See, the, the upside-down nature of God's kingdom can often mean that God does his work in us when we're at our weakest states or at our most pitiful or at our most anxious. But so often we, we wrestle away the opportunity to step into deeper relationship through faith and instead select the options that society gives us. And then like the Israelites, we either hold back from God or we offer him the junk and the leftovers. So some examples, we, we, off, we rob God when our offering of presence in our quiet times is tainted by our internal fantasies or mental distraction and noise. We rob God when we try to manipulate him in prayer. We rob God by being insular from our neighbors in the world, taking away opportunities from him to reach the people around us. We rob God when we don't steward our time well choosing our couches after a busy day instead of fighting traffic to make it to community group. We rob God when we consistently, keyword consistently, show up late to church and miss a chance for him to work through us in greeting newcomers or checking in on church family. I'll probably get some emails about that last one. Because even if you complain to Steve right now, they're going to bounce to me. So you might as well just send it to me directly. It's okay. I I can take it. But hopefully you see there, right, the intent is not to beat over the head at how often we rob God, but rather point out how much we're missing out on. It's like God is showing up to each of these situations and we're leaving him hanging. So on the flip side, on the positive side, do you know what happens when we step out into faith and obey God in these areas? So first, God delights in that obedience. It brings him joy. It glorifies him. Second, it deepens the intimacy between us and God because it forces us to trust in his provision and providence. We're forced to say, Lord, where else shall we turn to? We have to rely on him, and he promises that he will provide, so it increases intimacy in that way. It's also how God tends to work in his kingdom. So the Holy Spirit takes our small baby steps of faith and turns it into the fuel that his kingdom runs on. 
So we'll close this section with two more subtle ways we deny God an opportunity to work in our lives. So first is that we rob God when we avoid addressing sin. We see Israel ask in this passage, how have we robbed you? They were trying to deflect answering for their sin. They, they knew exactly what the law dictated. They knew they were holding back. But they didn't want to admit it, though, or at the very least deal with it or answer for the consequences. And so similarly, what sins might we consistently put off with now to deal with later? So lust is a common one. We think we'll deal with it once we get a boyfriend or girlfriend, or it'll magically go away once we get married. It doesn't. Greed, we think I'm poor, and once I hit this certain figure in my bank account or pay off student loans, then I'll feel, then I'll feel good. I mean, recall the Harvard study I, I just mentioned a couple minutes ago. Stewardship of our time. We're addicted to our phones and screens, and they actively prevent us from spending time with God or his people. We know we have a problem there, but we don't want to deal with it. Envy. We tell ourselves we're just appreciating what others have. People-pleasing. We crave the praise of others, and if we don't get it, we're crushed. See, when we avoid addressing these sins, we're denying God an opportunity to work in us. Because sin sucks up the space in our hearts and chokes out healthy habits. The second and last way we rob God is is really the one that hit me the hardest and in a lot of ways is a summary of, of everything that I just listed. We rob God by not being what he requires of us. So one theologian put it this way. Temptation, then, consists not so much in the titanic desire to be as God but in weakness, timidity, weariness, not wanting to be what God requires of us. So as Christians, we're in a different family, and we have a different identity, but we still act like we're a part of our old selves. And so we succumb to passivity, and instead of allowing God an opportunity to stretch us in our faith, to work in us, we often choose to avoid, to sidestep, hide, or get busy, or deflect, or don't show up. We're really just robbing ourselves. And Jesus desperately wants us just to show up, and he promises to do the rest of the work. He yearns for us to take that baby step, and he'll take the leap. So moving on, how did God respond to the Israelites holding back from him? So let's pick up in verse 9. God says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So here we see God giving his punishment for disobedience. The people and the land will be put under the curse as prescribed by Old Testament law back in Deuteronomy. But God doesn't stop there. Moving on to the second half of verse 10. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. All right, so God declares his punishment, yes, but he also shows his abundant mercy with a call to repentance and a reminder of his promises should the people repent. So Old Testament law warns Israel that if they are not faithful, they will not receive rain, straight up. But if they are faithful, they will receive rain. This was part of the Mosaic Covenant. It was not some arbitrary punishment that God just happened to spin the wheel of punishments and that's what it landed on. It was an explicit part of the law that everyone knew about that was written down. So because the Israelites have disobeyed, 
therefore drought has come. And we even read that bugs have come and started to eat the crops. The, the scholar Ligon Duncan makes an important point here. So the, the very punishment that God brings is an attempt to separate them from the thing that is dragging the people away from God. You see, so, so they're wanting to hold on to their things, their produce, their income, and not give it to God. So to bring them back to him, to draw them back into right relationship, he takes away the thing that has come between the people and God. This is so that they will have to turn back to him and hang on to him. He often does the, the same with us. And in the moment, it feels like God is being cruel or petty or vengeful. It's actually the most merciful thing that he could ever do to us. So did you guys happen to catch what God said in verse 10? He says, begin tithing again, restart the sacrifices, and I quote, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I think most of us here know testing God in the Bible usually does not end well. Uh, But here God is encouraging. This is one of the few passages in Scripture where God encourages his people to test him. So what, what is happening? So remember the framework this is happening in, right? We have codified into covenant law the punishment for sin of withholding of tithes and what the blessing is for obedience. So the people have experienced the punishment. So what does God do? He wants them to test him to see if they can really trust in his promise of blessing. He wants them to find out if the flip side of the coin is really true. And it's so, it's so merciful because God has every right to smite them for sin, but instead he says, repent. You can test me to see if the promise I gave you in the covenant is true. And he wants us to similarly act on the promises that he gives us. I remember a few months ago, I went with Pastor Steve and one of our provisional elders, Jeff Toomer, to Jenny's Ice Cream. All three of us nurse a very unhealthy obsession with ice cream and and Jenny's in general. So one summer night, all three of us went. And on the way there, Steve uh, tells us this tale about how the last time he was there, something happened. I can't even remember what, but basically the manager was like, hey, man, next time you come in, I'll give you a free pint. Just tell them at the cash register. And I'm thinking, Steve... You sweet, naive baby giraffe of a bodybuilder. That is, that is a classic service industry trick. They didn't give you a gift receipt or something to signify that you were owed this, like what happens if the manager isn't there or doesn't remember you like any normal human being wouldn't. But Steve seems pretty convinced, and he's a stubborn guy, so I, th- I think he's going to try it. So we get in line. I'm first. Steve's, Steve's behind me. Tumor's bringing up the rear. I pay for my stuff, and I give Steve a little side glance, and I can tell he's going to try it. Like, oh my gosh. And of course, the manager isn't there that night. Duh. Uh, so I step away from the cashier and listen to Steve as he begins to relay his story. And as I shared last week, I'm the type that gets embarrassed really easily. So I can't even listen to him try and work a free pint from this poor teenager. There's a really long line behind us. It goes out into the street, and I'm too embarrassed. So I leave the store, and I'm watching through the window. And a few seconds pass, and I see the cashier turn back to the fridge and get out an extra pint. And I'm like, shut the front door. How did that work? And Steve turns around with this grin as big as Texas, and I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. So if there's any doubt your lead pastor had charisma, there you go. But why, why did I tell you this? Well, as much as I hate that it worked, 
the manager made a promise, right? Steve acted out in faith on that promise, even at the risk of looking silly or embarrassing his friend. And the storm made good on that promise. In the same way, God is challenging us and his people to prove his promise true. So he has the promise stated and ready to be fulfilled, but he needs the key of obedience and faith to unlock it. Old Testament scholar Alan Ross puts it this way. Throughout the Bible, the explanation of divine blessing was expressed in terms of God's presence with his people or visiting them or returning to them. That's the blessing God promises us and invites us to act on. We get him. So the the Israelites got rain, yes, but rain was often symbolic of a deity's presence in ancient Near Eastern culture, and it's clear that God is saying he'll come back to them. So verse 7, he literally says, return to me and I will return to you. That's the blessing. All the ways, all the things we just talked about, all the ways in which we rob God, when we obey God in those areas, it never means we might get wealthy or say the right words to our neighbors or defeat sin forever. But when we do obey and take baby steps of faith, God's promise is that he'll be with us. He's ready to pour out his blessing the second we return to him. And in Malachi, God is saying, you can take that promise to the bank. So you might be thinking, okay, well, but what does that mean, right, that I get God's presence? It sounds almost a little bit like a cop-out. And it's true, sometimes it can feel like We hide behind Christian language to avoid explaining things, what they mean in the day-to-day and on the ground. So here's my explanation for what it means. In Malachi's day, God dwelt in the tabernacle. His presence was physically limited to the Holy of Holies. When Jesus walked the earth, God's presence was exhibited through him. And after Jesus' death and resurrection and Pentecost, the presence is now poured out through the Holy Spirit in the heart of each believer. So the Spirit indwells in us and is the means by which God convicts us, sanctifies us, gives us joy, gives us peace, contentment, and has have intimacy with him. So the Holy Spirit does not up and vanish, like poof, each time we sin, but sinning does block God's presence from us. So sin blocks our heart's ability to worship, our ability to commune with God, It dampens the sound of God's voice in our lives. It loosens the convictions we have. It can even strain our desire to tell others about God. And so when we confess or return to God, those doors are flung back open. God and the Holy Spirit never leave us when we sin, but rather we block ourselves. One could say we rob ourselves of those gifts. And when we are in the presence of God, it doesn't necessarily mean that our quiet times will hum with electricity or will have miraculous superpowers. But one thing I do want to challenge our very Arlingtonian rational minds with, it does mean that we need to be open to surprises. Jesus was a surprise machine, and he to this day is turning our world and what it means to live upside down in the very best way. And sometimes I think we avoid taking those baby steps in faith because we're a little bit afraid of Jesus actually showing up in these situations. So that's the blessing and the gift we receive. Intimacy, sanctification, conviction, peace, and joy through the Holy Spirit. 
Lastly, in this section, let's look at verse 12 there. God says, Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So this is proof that our obedience is an evangelistic tool used by God. He's saying, Israel, if you do this, everyone around you, all the nations will see my blessing and say, wow, that's an amazing deity you have there. And likewise, it will be impossible for others to ignore the steps of faith we take in our lives in obedience to God. It's hard to notice, but it'll be there. So it might look like a friend noticing your peace through a difficult time. It might look like others noticing the contentment we have in a world of competition and excess. It might look like a crazy stare after you tell someone that, yeah, you really do give a portion of your income to the church. God's people are always separated from and noticed by others as a result of their faith and obedience. So in summary, God's immediate response is a call of repentance and a call to prove his promises true and act on them. And he's got a perfect track record of fulfilling those promises, and he's not going to mess up for the first time with you and me. So now let's look at God's final response. Behind the robbing of God and refusing an opportunity to trust him is really a lack of faith. So it can be a, a lack of faith in his provision, his goodness, his trustworthiness. I think a lot of times we end up robbing God simply because we aren't quite sure that we can trust him. We aren't sure that he's good like he claims to be when our felt experience seems to contradict that claim. And the Israelites felt the same way too. So even though they had a mountain's worth of history of God's provision, they still looked around and said, well, what about that injustice? What about those evildoers prospering? Are you going to be good to me? Because if not, I'll take my worship and faith and money elsewhere. But as we saw, God was merciful to them through his call to repentance and reminder of his promise of blessing. And so the people return, and then they fall away again. And like them, we return only to fall away again. We come back and repent and taste his goodness of his presence, and then we leave God hanging at the next opportunity. We feel sure of his goodness one moment and then doubt it the second injustice creeps into our lives. We look at God, how, how, how he sustained us and provided for us in the path, and then in the next breath we're paralyzed by fear or doubt and turn to something the world offers us for security and comfort. And then we get discouraged when we look at our sinful hearts and our wishy-washiness. We have the same problem as the Israelites in Malachi, the same as any, any and every sinner throughout history. We're stuck in a cycle of belief and unbelief, of trusting God and robbing God, of faith and lack of faith. So we have to ask, what, what can break that cycle? And the answer is Jesus. So Jesus breaks that cycle. See, he had perfect faith. He never robbed God, even when he wanted most to, when he asked if there was another way of fulfilling God's will outside of the cross. He could have robbed God there, but he didn't. And whereas the Israelites robbed God of the food meant for storehouses, Jesus personifies overflowing abundance. He created a surplus of food from a child's portion to give to the hungry masses with much to spare. He made vats overflow with the best wine after it ran out at a wedding. He told the woman at the well that he is living water enough to quench any thirst forever. Where sickness and disease robbed his friends of health and even life, he gave healing and new life abundantly. When Satan tempted Jesus to rob God, 
with the promise of riches and kingdoms, he trusted in God and rebuked Satan. When Jesus saw his followers were weary, he offered an easy yoke. Jesus overflows with perfect faith and abundance and generosity. And when he was betrayed, his response was not one of punishment to his betrayers or his enemies, but one of sacrificial death. He dies for his betrayers. He dies for the fickle friend, the cowardly disciple, the timid follower, the untrustworthy man. He dies for those who rob God. And in doing so, Jesus himself is robbed of intimacy with his father. God rescinded his blessing of presence from Jesus, so now we can have that intimacy that God promises for us. Jesus paid the penalty for withholding of our ties and lack of faith so that we didn't have to. His obedience and faith is now ours through the cross, and likewise, as we saw God's promise of blessing, God promised the blessing of his presence to, to the Israelites who are faithful, so we are now given the presence of the Holy Spirit within us for those who trust in Jesus. Christ fulfilled that part of the law, and the only way he could do it was to die for us and have his faith be counted as ours. So now when we mess up and stray and rob God, we don't have to rely on how big our faith is in God's goodness. We can look to the cross as our assurance of God's faithfulness to us, and we know it'll be okay because Jesus' faith is ours. He paid the price we deserve, and we may mess up, and we may rob God and be lacking in our faith, but we see how those people are treated, how they were died for, and how they're loved to the uttermost by their Savior. And that should send us sprinting right back into the arms of God, into his presence. It breaks the cycle because there is no cycle to break anymore with Jesus. He paid it all. Our relapses are falling away. It's already been covered by the blood of the Lamb. There's no in and out with Jesus. For those in Christ, there's just in and then going deeper into his arms after we mess up, washing ourselves with his sponge of grace after our sin rears its head. And then living freely as we take baby steps in faith as a people who are treasured by an abundant and generous God who calls us into deeper and deeper relationship with him each day. Let's pray.